Please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. This morning we will be reading all eight verses. Please give your attention to God's word. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in that way is blame. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked of the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. One of the many things that make Calvin and Hobbes the greatest comic strip ever is its uncanny ability to point out some of the most profound observations on the human condition. For instance, in one of those strips, you see in the first frame Calvin and his nemesis Susie sitting beside each other in the classroom looking at their just returned quiz papers. And Calvin leans over to Susie and he says to her, what did you get? Susie says, I got an A. Calvin says, really? Boy, I hate to be you. I got a C. Susie says, why would you rather get a C than an A? And Calvin answers, I find my life is a lot easier the lower I keep people's expectations. <laughs> How many of us as children live by that principle don't do too good of work or else you raise expectations for your life. Don't be too diligent. Don't do work with too much excellence or you'll get more work and more responsibility. So do just enough to be good enough to get along. How many of us even today look at how we do our work in the workplace and say, hey, I have to admit there are some areas where I have lowered the expectation. I have not worked with diligence and excellence. I've reached a more comfortable place of a standard for my work. I had a job when I was in college. It was working for a natural gas company. And those of us, there was always a handful of us that worked just during the summer, the college students. And they would put us on a crew with year-round workers. And you learned in a hurry 
on that job, if you wanted to last very long, that you didn't work too hard. You didn't work too diligently. You didn't work with too much excellence or else the permanent workers would get mad at you because they didn't want you raising the standards. And so you had to learn and adapt to the culture. You had to work only four or five hours out of an eight-hour day instead of eight hours out of an eight-hour day. I guess the real question this morning is how many of us have applied that same principle to our spiritual lives, to our discipleship, where we've lowered the expectations, lowered the bar of holiness that we're striving for to a more comfortable level, to a place where we're good enough. And so then the, really the question is, have you plateaued? Have you said, okay, I, I'm, I, you know, I know, I know, by standard of God's word, I've got a long way to go, but I'm better than most of the people around me. You've lowered the standard. Psalm 101 was written as a corrective to that strong tendency that we as sinners have even sinners saved by grace. It challenges us to not lower the standard of holiness in our lives. It challenges us not to plateau in our pursuit of holiness. It was written by King David, that's what the title of it says. And it's written from the perspective of a king. Matter of fact, some commentators think that this psalm was part of a coronation ritual that maybe this was actually a set of vows that David and other kings of Israel would take before they ascended to the throne to rule over God's people. Or maybe it was an actual song that was sung as part of the coronation, where the king would commit himself to be a great ruler. If you don't read it from that perspective, if you read it as something that you or I might write, then it's going to come off as a little self-righteous, maybe even a little judgmental, certainly unrealistic, and certainly harsh towards those who don't pursue what is right and good. But if you understand that it's a king that's writing it, then you understand the responsibilities of a king. It's written from the perspective of one who was the ultimate authority. We don't really have positions like that in our own culture, our own government. But he was the ultimate authority. He was the ultimate judge. He was the ultimate determiner of every decision, of every criminal case, of every situation. He was the last word. And so it's setting before himself a standard to live by. And what's so striking as you dig into the text is how high that standard is. In verse 2, he says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. As a child of God and as a king over God's people, I will commit myself to continually ponder the way that is blameless. We live in an age filled with moral failures on the part of our leaders, both leaders in the government and leaders in the church. And so you read the standards by which David says he committed himself to live by, and you say, wow, is that pie in the sky? Is that unrealistic? Is it? it is, is it unrealistic to strive for righteousness, for holiness? 
for blamelessness? Was Jesus just using hyperbole when he said to his disciples, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect? What did Jesus mean in setting that kind of standard for our lives? My thesis for you this morning to consider based on Psalm 101 is that we are never to settle for less than perfection. Think about that in your Christian life. We are never to settle for less than perfection. David is pursuing blamelessness here. And we're going to talk about what blamelessness is according to Scripture. That's what he was striving for as a king, but as a child of God also. As a king, he was striving for blamelessness as a model for his people, as a shepherd to his people, as an example for his people to follow. So let's look at the standards that David set for himself. First of all, he lays down two crucial principles that he wants to be known as the driving principles of his reign. We see in the verse 1, his passion for love and for justice. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. Steadfast love is that word that we've come across many times in our study of the Psalms and elsewhere in Scripture. It's the Hebrew word kesed, which means it it's refers to that unique love that God has for his people what we call covenant love. It's the love that motivates and designs the covenant of grace. By definition, it's the kind of love that is unconditional. It's the kind of love that sacrifices for the best well-being of those who are the object of that love. That's covenant love. David says, I want my reign to be known for that principle, that kind of love, a king who would lay down his life for his people, for whatever is best for them. The second principle is justice. You see that in verse 8. It sounds like harsh, strong language, but again, understand that he's saying it as the king, as the supreme judge of the land. He says, morning by morning, and that's when they would hear courses in his court. That's where he would draw his, his court together, and they would hear the, the most troubling, most difficult cases of, of justice in the land. And it says, morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. That's a unique responsibility of the king of the land. And he says, as I do that, I will pursue justice. Not the world's idea of justice, God's definition of justice in his word, in his law. Kings and other government rulers are given the power of the sword, according to Paul in Romans 13. That's the authority to reward those who keep God's law and to punish those who break God's law. Just to show you that it's clearly a New Testament principle as well. It's what Peter talks, in, talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. David is committing himself to rule with 
covenant love for the people of God and to reflect the justice of God, the purity and holiness of God's law as he judges and rules over God's people. Covenant love and justice are not opposed to one another. Mercy and justice are not opposed to one another. Actually, that's what the cross is about, upholding justice and mercy. David wants to be that kind of ruler, speaking the truth in love. Secondly, he commits himself to a blameless life. And here's where we get to the heart of the message of this psalm. He commits himself to a blameless life. In verses 2 through 4, he gives a picture of his personal commitments, and he begins in his personal life, his life at home, not on the throne, not in the king's court, but his life at home with his family, his children, his wife. He says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Notice that he's first of all focused upon blamelessness in his own house. He says, I will walk with integrity of heart, let alone action within my own house. Second to God only, it's our family that really knows the level of our blamelessness, the level of our obedience to God. Our family will know first among people on this planet about the level, the standards that you have set for being obedient to the will of God in your life. Contrary to current public and political thinking, a leader's personal life and home is definitely connected to his public life as a ruler. If he cannot be trusted at home, if he cannot pursue righteousness at home in his personal and private life, do not trust him to do it in his public life. In the words of Paul in the New Testament, he must manage his own household well before he can be considered to be a leader. In verse 3, he commits himself to not set before his eyes anything that is worthless or worldly or rebellious or perverse. What you set before your eyes, that's the scripture's way of saying what you focus upon, what you desire, what you long for, what you lust for in life. He's not going to set his focus upon anything that is worthless or perverse or worldly. He is going to be a leader with self-control and self-discipline. He's committing himself to blamelessness. Are you prepared to do that this morning? To commit yourself to blamelessness? Blamelessness in Scripture, now let me take a moment to define it. Because blamelessness isn't the same as perfection. Not the way that Scripture defines it. It's not being perfect in thought, word, and deed. None of us. David, nor any of us, could ever attain that goal in this life. But blamelessness is attainable. Matter of fact, blamelessness is required of us in Scripture. Think about the people in Scripture who were given the adjective blameless. Noah. Noah was called a blameless man. Abraham was called a blameless man. David was called a blameless man. Job was called blameless. Daniel, Zechariah, and Elizabeth. Paul, the Apostle Paul, was called blameless. None of these people we know from the rest of Scripture were sinless. None of them were perfect. 
but they still were blameless. So what is blamelessness? Well, the focus of the word is on what other people see. When other people observe your life, what do they see? They're not going to see perfection. But what they ought to see is a reputation for godliness. A, represent, a, rep, a, a rep, reputation, and this is why reputation is so important, a reputation of being blameless in the sight of men. David was guilty of great sin. David was guilty of scandalous sins. They're far more scandalous than I'm sure any of us in the room have committed. He was an adulterer and he was a murderer. And he was a prideful man who committed many errors in judgment as a ruler because of his pride. What that says to us is that scandalous, even scandalous sin does not disqualify you from being blameless. The question is, what do you do with that sin? The question is, do you acknowledge that sin as sin? Do you confess that sin? Do you turn from that sin and come to God for grace and forgiveness and then repent of that sin and commit yourself anew to obedience? Is that your reputation? To be blameless means that you do the will of God and if you sin, that means you come to God according to the means by which he has provided to cover that sin and turn from that sin and commit yourself again to obedience. That's what David was like. We see this idea of it being a, a, an external observation of a person's life when you look at what happened later in David's life when he was running from, before he became king, when he was running from Saul, he actually ran and hid among the Philistines for a while. And after a while, he joined the Philistine army to go fight their enemies. And one day they were going to go fight the Israelites. And David didn't want to fight his own people. But God provided because the king, the king Achish of the, of the Philistines, he came to David. And this is what he said to him. He's explaining why his other soldiers didn't want to fight with David. But he says to him, he prefaces his comments by saying, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Achish recognized David as a blameless person. Achish, from his pagan worldview and his pagan values, looked at David and said, there's something different about you. You love God. And I see it in the way you live your life. I see it in the way that you deal with your sin. And I see it the way that you commit yourself over and over again anew to obedience to your God. You are a blameless person. A blameless person sins, but that sin is not ongoing. It does not characterize his life. What characterizes his life is repentance and the pursuit of holiness. What characterizes the life of a blameless person is repentance and a pursuit of holiness. Continual. That is a man after God's own heart. Even a murderer and adulterer can be a man after God's own heart and considered blameless in this life. And that's what leaders are called to. And we'll see in a moment that's what we're all called to. The, second the, the, the third commitment that David made, the first commitment is to live by the principles of covenant love and justice. Secondly, a commitment to private and public blamelessness. 
Thirdly, he commits himself to associating himself with blameless people. That's in verses 5 through 7. There he's talking about the people that he is going to connect himself to, the people that he is going to associate himself with. Again, keep in mind, speaking as a king. He says, I'm not going to be among people who do these terrible things. Now, first of all, understand he's not saying that he's not going to associate with any other sinners. He's not saying he's going to isolate himself from people who aren't walking in obedience. We can't live in the world without associating ourselves with sinners. What he's saying is, is I'm not going to yoke myself. I'm not going to bring into my inner circle. I am not going to uh, connect my life and my service to God to those who are living in rebellion and disobedience. He's committing himself to maintaining a godly administration to lead God's people alongside of him. Godly advisors, godly ambassadors, godly governors, godly servants in his court. If you look at the negative characteristic that he, in the people, he says, I will not associate myself with these kinds of people. These kinds of people he will not allow to be in his inner circle. You look at those characteristics and they all add up to the kind of royal court intrigue that you see in almost every royal court of any, every government of any country in history. Even the kind you see in the governing houses of our own country. Prideful people vying against one another for power. Prideful people jockeying for position. Prideful people smearing each other's character in order to get ahead. Scheming for power and authority. David says, I will not allow slanderers, arrogant people, liars and schemers to serve in my court. And that's just an ongoing truism about great leaders in this world. Great leaders, truly great leaders, quality leaders are people who surround themselves with quality people. Paul calls this principle yoking, as I mentioned in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. He says in verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? We are called to love and know and serve the sinners around us, but we are not to yoke ourselves to people who are living in rebellion to the king to whom we serve. We apply that yoking passage to marriage, but it applies to any relationship where you are involving yourself in connection with another, in association with another person where you are compromising. Where that person laboring under the same yoke that you're laboring under is actually pulling you from the path of righteousness. Do you have relationships in your life where you are compromising your allegiance to the Lord and your obedience to his will because these relationships are causing you to stray from righteousness? David commits himself to not let that happen in his administration. So to sum up Psalm 101, David is making the commitment to strive to be the ideal ruler. He commits himself to strive for the principles of covenant love and justice in everything that he does in his reign. He commits himself to private and public blamelessness, and he commits himself to associating only to people in his administration who are blameless. And I will be the first to say to you that I, David knew he would not live up to these ideals. He knew that he could not reach these standards in his own strength. 
He knew that he would fail again and again. And that's why I believe he interrupts these very solemn vows in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, when, in the middle of verse 2, where he says, Oh, Lord, when are you going to come to me? He's saying, Lord, listen to these vows I'm making. I can't do this. But Lord, if you come to me, you can help me. You can enable me. You can transform me. Lord, I need you to fulfill these vows. You see, that's what the standards of God's law, the standards of God's holiness, that's what it's meant to do. It's to drive us to our knees and say, God, I can't do this. This is so far beyond me. I can't live up to these vows. How can I take these vows? I'm going to break them. Lord, have mercy upon me, and Lord, transform me so that I can fulfill these vows. You see, this is a messianic psalm. Psalm 101 is, yes, about David. And these are real vows that David is making about his real life. But it's also a picture of the king to come. It's a picture of the greater son of David, our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ does fulfill every one of these standards without flaw, without sin, without any straying from God's standards. He perfectly fulfilled all of these. He is the great king. He's the one who meets all of God's standards. What's interesting is I read and studied this psalm is there are a number of commentators who believe that David must have written this psalm early in his life and early in his reign. And I said, why? Why do they think that he wrote it at the beginning of his reign and not in the middle of his reign or at the end of his reign? Well, the reason was, well, if David had written this after he had committed adultery, after he had murdered someone, after he had committed all these errors and sins and judgment and pride that, that ruined his reign, how could he possibly have written it after all his failures? And I think you're missing the point of the psalm. David easily, matter of fact, I think David could have written this with far more passion late in his life, after all his failures, because he had come to understand the gospel more deeply. He had come to understand. You know, if you say that David couldn't have written this after his failures, then you're saying that the message of this psalm is don't set for yourself high standards. Don't set for yourself unrealistic goals in your personal life, in your service to God. If David couldn't have written this after all his failures, then you're missing the whole point of the psalm. The point is there is only one who can meet all these standards in his own power, in his own strength, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But he has called us to reach the standards of his reign. He has called us to strive to be like him. And far better than that, he has provided the means to do so. We believe, along with David, you see, this is not a New Testament idea that a perfect substitute had to die in our place. That's not a New Testament idea. That goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That a perfect substitute had to die in our place to take the punishment that our sins deserved. And that by taking away our punishment, that if we believe in God's promise that the death of that perfect sacrifice would provide forgiveness of sins, that he would give us the gift of his righteousness. That we would be given the gift of being perfect in his sight by faith, not by works. David believed that just like you and I believe that. And so David understood that his sins of adultery and his sins of murder 
They were paid for by the blood of a sacrifice and put afar as way as east is from west. And that he is forgiven and he is accounted righteous in the sight of a holy God because of this gift that's given to him. And therefore, based on that, he could commit himself again to perfect obedience. I'm going to strive to be holy because my sin has been taken away by God's gift. David wrote Psalm 32 that we studied last Sunday. David wrote Psalm 51. He understood forgiveness and repentance and restoration and the pursuit of holiness. David was promised that one of his sons would come and be the true, righteous, eternal king. This was Jesus Christ. He lived perfectly. He died for our sins. He was resurrected from the dead, proving that his sacrifice on our behalf was accepted by our holy God and Father and Judge. And now he reigns in true covenant love and justice over all for all eternity. David trusted in Christ. Yes, in advance. Yes, centuries before he came, but he trusted in Christ. And that's why this standard of blamelessness, this incredibly high standard for our behavior applies not just to our leaders, but to all of us. It does certainly apply to our leaders. It applies to the leaders of our church. If you don't believe that, just go to the New Testament, look for the qualifications for leaders. Go to 1 Timothy, go to Titus. The first attribute of someone that you should consider to be a leader in your church is that he be, according to Paul, above reproach. That's another way, that's another way of saying blameless. He must be blameless for you to consider him to be a leader. For a deacon, it's listed as one of the characteristics to look for in a deacon is he must be blameless. And so it is something not only that can be attained, but must be attained by anyone who is a leader. But notice, you have to have that qualification as a regular member of the church before you can be considered to be a leader. You don't become blameless when you become a leader. You become blameless so that you can become a leader. And so therefore, it's a standard for all of you. All of you are to strive for blamelessness in your life. That kind of reputation of a person who knows what it is to hate sin, to ask forgiveness for sin, and to repent of sin, and to renew a pursuit of holiness. That's a blameless person. That that's your life. That's the course of your life. That's what people see when they look at you. You know, we were saved. We talked about this back in our time of confession of sin. We were saved in order that we might become blameless. Think about that. Why did God save you? Did God save you because you're special? No. Did God save you to keep you from burning in hell? No. Did God save you to give you the blessings of heaven? No. Oh, those are all true, but that's not why he saved you. The New Testament scriptures are absolutely clear why Jesus Christ had to come to shed his blood to save us. Let me give you just a few examples. Ephesians 1, I'll read it for you again. Ephesians 1 verse 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Why did he choose us? So that we would become blameless before him. 
Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in the body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Christ died so that you would become blameless. Now you might say, oh, but I will one day. When I go and die and be with the Lord or on judgment day, when, when I'm made perfect. So I will be, no. The blamelessness applies to this life. Perfection applies to the next life. Blamelessness applies to this life. Unless you have any doubt, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among among whom you shine as lights in the world. Not only are you called to be blameless in this life, in this world, But it's important, Paul says, to your witness. If you are not reflecting blamelessness to the people around you, if they are not seeing godly blamelessness in you, then you're killing your witness. Now again, it's not perfection. But it is confessing sin, repenting of sin, and renewing day by day, moment by moment, a pledge to be obedient to pursue holiness. You see, our relationship with the law has changed because of Jesus Christ. Before we knew Christ, the law condemned us. Condemned us as guilty criminals before a holy God and sentenced us to eternity in hell. But now that Christ has fulfilled the terms of the law for us, given us the gift of his righteousness and cleansed us by his blood, now the law, we love the law according to the word of God. People who have been redeemed love the law. You know why? Because it's a blueprint to blamelessness. It's a blueprint to holiness. The law is what we live for now because we were saved so that we'd become blameless. I was reading an article just yesterday, and you can surely find it on the Gospel Coalition website. Trevin Wax is one of their regular bloggers. It was a really intriguing article he wrote yesterday. He was, it was actually kind of summarizing the main point of his new book, which was called, I love the title of it, Eschatological Discipleship. Eschatological Discipleship. And his main point, as he summarized it in the article, is that we need to focus on our future self in the battle against sin. He's saying that when we battle sin, we rest upon our willpower, we rely upon our willpower, we look back at the guilt and shame of, uh, of sins committed in the past to motivate us to do what's right. He says, no, look at your future self. Look at what, God, what Christ has promised you will be. You will be perfect one day. And use that as your motivation to engage sin in the present. See, we're not to be motivated by guilt and shame. Christ has taken that away. We are to be motivated by a love for God's law and a love for what he is making us into. One day we'll be perfect. And today you can make two or three or four or five or ten small steps in that direction. And when you fail, when you sin, and you will sin, you confess the sin, you look to Christ for grace and forgiveness, and then you turn from that sin and as part of your repentance you say, I'm going to renew my commitment to perfection, to holiness, and I'm not going to settle for less. I'm not going to settle for less. P. 
Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You see, that challenge should not drive us into shame and self-wallow and self-pity. It should excite us because, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, we use that promise all in the wrong way all the time. When we say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, that doesn't mean that we can accomplish all of our plans, we can have all these great things and do all these great things. What it's saying is, is you could do what God created you to do as Christ strengthens you. And what did he create you to do? To pursue holiness, to be like him, to be blameless in his sight. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the beauty of the gospel. If we are in Christ Jesus, we already meet God's perfect standards because Christ's righteousness is robed around us. And we meet his standards by faith alone. And when we sin, all we need to do is confess and ask the Holy Spirit to enable us to repent and then renew a commitment to obey. We get a new start every morning. That's what Lamentations chapter 3 says. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Every time you wake up in the morning, strive for perfection. Strive for perfection. Don't settle for anything less. Have you lowered your expectations in your obedience to the Lord? Have you lowered the bar for what holiness looks like in your life? Has some sinful pattern in your life just become part of your identity because you've just accepted it? Have you settled for less than blamelessness? If so, then I invite you to come to the table. Because at the table is where you will draw strength. At the table is where you will draw near to the Lord. At the table, you will learn what it means that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. At the table, you'll be able to celebrate the forgiveness that Christ has given to you as a gift and you will find that strength to repent and to pursue holiness with vigor and joy again. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blessing of your word. Thank you that when you saved us, you did not lower the standards for us. But when you saved us, you gave us the means by which we can immediately meet your standards by faith and which we can, for the rest of our lives, strive every day to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you that you saved us to make us holy. Lord, renew our commitment to reach that goal. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.